Welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning back in as we continue our walkthrough of the book of Mosiah. We've just wrapped up a pivotal moment of this book and really the history of the entire Nephite people. And when I say pivotal, I mean it. This is a pivot point in the trajectory of the Nephites. This is a moment that we as readers enjoy the privilege of seeing the broader perspective than those who are actually living through it have. Abinadi, for example, likely had little sense of the impact his preaching would have. Most Zenophites had no idea that the execution of Abinadi would launch the most dramatic restructuring of Lehite's society in 500 years. And those living in Zarahemla didn't even know the fate of Zenith and his people, let alone that a prophet had come among them. We, on the other hand, have paid attention to how Mormon has structured the book of Mosiah, and we know that he has placed Abinadi's story and the story that follows of Alma and the rise of the church at the very center of this book. We also know that the book of Mosiah is where Mormon is introducing us to his main characters, the church and the Nephite government, and that the introduction of those two characters, and more specifically of the church, will drive the story forward until the climactic coming of Christ. I said this in our previous episode, but Noah's execution of Abinadi has a kind of type and shadow, to borrow a phrase from Abinadi himself, of the execution of Jesus. Here are a few parallels that I've come up with. Both of them are arrested for preaching destruction to their nation. Abinadi prophesies of the destruction of the Zenophites, and Jesus prophesies of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which is part of the overall destruction that the Jewish people suffered in 70 AD. Both teach of the resurrection. It's also safe to assume that Abinadi, like Jesus, preached in the temple. Both Abinadi and Jesus are arrested and tried by a body of priests. Abinadi is tried by Noah's priests, and Jesus is tried by the Sanhedrin, and both compared their own death to the prophesied destruction that would follow. Abinadi prophesied that Noah and his priests would suffer his same fate, and Jesus compared his own death to the destruction of the temple. Also in both trials, Abinadi and Jesus had members of the priestly tribunal try and defend them, Alma and Nicodemus respectively. Both Abinadi and Jesus are brought before kings who like to think of themselves as the fulfillment of prophecy. Noah, of course, thought he was living in Isaiah's prophesied kingdom. And the Herods, who were actually tetrarchs, were a self-styled Messiah family. Abinadi and Jesus were both executed in excruciating ways. Both of them experienced a three-day waiting period. Abinadi waits in prison to be tried for three days, and Jesus waits three days to resurrect. For both Abinadi and Jesus... The state authority that executed them, Noah and his priests and the Romans and the Sanhedrin, both thought that they were putting an end to the nuisance that threatened their rule, only to find that the execution launched an even greater movement. The deaths of both figures preceded the rise of a new type of religious body called a church. It's possible that both of them were active in the rise of that religious body even after their deaths. Jesus, of course, resurrected and appeared to many, but it's possible, and this is speculative, that Abinadi is one of, if not the angel that appears to Benjamin and to Alma the Younger. Along that same line, both of their messages are really carried to the broader world by other messengers after their death. 
I'm thinking specifically of Alma the Younger and Paul, who have their own parallels to each other, but there are others who help in that effort. That's a lot of parallels, and there are probably more. Those are just the ones I could come up with while I was putting this episode together. I should probably spend more time thinking about that. It looks like there's something there. That's really one of the most enjoyable parts of doing this podcast. Teaching the Book of Mormon has helped me to understand it better than reading it, but writing about the Book of Mormon has helped me to understand it better than teaching it. And this podcast has forced me to start writing about it. Okay, back to the Book of Mosiah and today's chapter, chapter 18. This chapter has to be one of the best chapters in the Book of Mormon. I know I say that a lot, but remember, we're still looking at the centerpiece of Mormon's Book of Mosiah. And the story that we find here is incredible. It's so incredible, in fact, that I decided to break it into two parts. Part one will cover verses 1 through 16. And then I'll do another episode for part two that will cover verses 17 through 35. So let's begin by looking at verses 1 through 6. We've already been introduced to Alma. Remember that this is Alma the Elder. He's young, he's educated, he's very likely born and raised in privilege. And as a young priest in Noah's court, I'm sure that until Abinadi came along, he thought his future would be one of power and status. But that all changes in these verses. He's given up everything. Like Paul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, Alma's encounter with Mosiah has flipped the world upside down. He's become a fugitive from the very court that gave him power. He starts recording the words of Abinadi and writing scripture, and he immediately begins preaching those words to other people. Unlike Paul, however, Alma is more private about his preaching. He's seen up close what happens when you preach against the king and knows he needs to be strategic about it. We don't get a lot from Mormon about his message. We can assume that it was quite similar to what we've been reading from Abinadi, since Alma is probably the source of our record there. But there's a clear emphasis on the fact that deliverance will come through Christ's power, yes, but a different kind of power than we might expect. Christ's power comes through suffering, death, and resurrection, not through force. And people start to believe in Alma's message. Now, we don't know why Alma had more success than Abinadi. Maybe Abinadi got through to more people than we know of. Maybe he had a small following, or some people secretly believed Abinadi but were scared to say anything about it. And because of that, they were more open to Alma's preaching, and over time he starts to gather people to a place called Mormon. Here's a little side note. There's this faith-promoting rumor that gets spread around the church from time to time that Mormon means quote-unquote more good. There's no indication that that's the case. I actually have a funny story about this. I was sitting in Gospel Doctrine one time, and the teacher asked if anyone knew what Mormon meant. And I had no idea where they were going with this, but their whole lesson was kind of built on this idea of more good. And I'd never heard that rumor before, so I raised my hand, and I said something like, on the borders of the land filled with wild beasts. And the teacher just looked at me like I was crazy or something. And even though I thought that their question was like a little strange, I just tried to answer it the best that I could. And I was basing my answer on the thing that Mormon, our author, gives us about why Mormon, the place, is named that. He says that this place, Mormon, was called that by the king because it was, quote, in the borders of the land, having been infested by time or at seasons by wild beasts. So that's what I was answering. And it didn't fit at all in this person's lesson. And I think uh, I kind of screwed things up for them. So I'm sorry about that. Now, the name Mormon won't 
be important because of what it means. It doesn't mean more good, and I'm not sure I can find a lot of significance in being infested by wild beasts. It'll be important because what takes place at that place carrying that name will change the Nephites. And the person who is named after that place, our author, will spend some time dwelling on that. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Alma gathers his people at Mormon because he's been hiding out there and because there's a fountain of pure water. Somehow they're able to keep their gatherings under wraps, even though the king is hunting for Alma and has watchtowers placed throughout his kingdom. In verses 7 through 16, we begin to learn what their gatherings entailed. Mormon tells us, And it came to pass that after many days there were a goodly number gathered together at the place of Mormon to hear the words of Alma. Yea, all were gathered together that believed on his word to hear him. And he did teach them and did preach unto them repentance and redemption and faith on the Lord. We don't know how long this goes on and in what ways Alma develops his message, but one of the most interesting parts of my time at grad school was studying new religious movements including the early church, and it's fascinating to see how quickly teachings and practices evolve in young religions, and I'm sure that's happening here. Alma is doing something that nobody has really ever done before among the Nephites. He's beginning to gather a group together that isn't a family, like Lehi, and isn't a kingdom, like Nephi, Mosiah, Benjamin, and Zenith. It's a group that is forming, over time, based solely on belief, and the behaviors that flow from that belief what scholars call a confessional community. Remember when we talked about Abinadi's message being about the reformation of the community and not simply an internal religious experience? Remember that Abinadi didn't believe that the way that the kings and priests had structured society was going to be able to save the people from earthly destruction or the eternal consequences of their wickedness, and that his whole message was that the community needed to be founded on the belief that God himself would come down in the flesh subject himself to the mortal condition, die, and resurrect for his people, that's the community that Alma is trying to establish, one based on that belief. Great. So let's challenge Abinadi and Alma a bit. Noah and his priests may be corrupt and wicked, but at least they have laws and taxes and an army and a system of government. You might not like everything that they're doing, but there's at least a sense of a national identity, and there's all kinds of moving parts that do things. And Noah and his priests would point to the prosperity of their people as evidence that the things that they are doing are actually working so well that they're pretty sure that they've fulfilled prophecy. So what does the Abinadi Alma community do besides just sit around and talk about Christ? That's actually a question that a lot of people are asking of religion today. What use is religion if it's just kind of belief in what many people believe to be superstitions? Well, Alma's got an answer for you. Because if you go beyond just talking about Christ and do what Abinadi said, apply your hearts to understanding, the implications of this belief of God condescending to take upon himself the mortal condition, suffering everyone's sins, pains, and afflictions, and dying in order to rise up again, if you really believe that that's the kind of power that can truly change the world, then you're going to behave differently. You're going to create a different type of community. Let's let Alma explain. He says, Behold, here are the waters of Mormon, for thus they were called. And now, as ye are desirous to come into the fold of God, 
and to be called his people, and are willing to bear one another's burdens, that they may be light, yea, and are willing to mourn with those that mourn, yea, and comfort those that stand in need of comfort, and to stand as a witness of God at all times, and in all things, and in all places that ye may be in, even until death, that ye may be redeemed of God, and be numbered with those of the first resurrection, that ye may have eternal life. Now I say unto you, if this be the desire of your hearts, what have you against being baptized in the name of the Lord, as a witness before him that ye have entered into a covenant with him, and ye will serve him and keep his commandments, that he may pour out his spirit more abundantly upon you? That's what they do. They serve one another. That's the purpose for their community. I don't want to belabor the point, but to believe in Christ is to believe in the power of weakness. I've drawn on the image of the conquering lion versus the suffering lamb before. Believing in Christ is believing that the only way the lion can conquer is by becoming the suffering lamb. Now, that is so counterintuitive. Everyone knows that lions conquer through sheer physical force and violence. And Christians, that includes some members of the church, have often gotten this wrong. They draw near unto the suffering lamb with their lips, but their hearts are too in love with the image of the conquering lion. They worship through the forms of the suffering lamb, like hanging statues of the cross, or eating his broken body and drinking his spilt blood, but they deny the power of that self-sacrifice. For centuries, Christians have been some of the greatest worshipers of physical dominance and force in history. Look again at what should logically flow from the belief in a God who suffers. Alma's people are going to mourn with those that mourn because they know that God mourns with all people. They're going to comfort those who stand in need of comfort because freely they've been healed with Christ's wounds and freely they must give that same healing to others. They're never going to sideline their witness of God because if this is anything more than a fantasy, if there really is a God and he really is going to come down and take upon himself mortality, suffer and die, and most of all, if he really is going to be resurrected, it period changes period everything period so the way into this community this fold of god is to symbolically act out that same self-sacrifice with your feet in your watery grave being buried and resurrecting out of that water and then living as if it really happened and to treat others as if you were really the messiah himself receiving the messiah's spirit and taking responsibility for their suffering as if it were your own. That's quite a community. A community like that might just be able to change the world. That is, if you believe in that sort of weakness. It turns out that Alma's little group did believe. They respond to Alma's call, This is the desire of our hearts. So Alma takes a man named Helam down into the water, and this is what Mormon tells us follows. Alma cried, saying, O Lord, pour out thy spirit upon thy servant, that he may do this work with holiness of heart. And when he had said these words, the spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he said, Helam, I baptize thee, having authority from Almighty God, as a testimony that ye entered into a covenant to serve him, until you are dead as to the mortal body. 
and may the Spirit of the Lord be poured out upon you, and may he grant unto you eternal life through the redemption of Christ, whom he has prepared from the foundation of the world. And after Alma had said these words, both Alma and Helam were buried in the water, and they rose and came forth out of the water, rejoicing, being filled with the Spirit. The testimony that you're going to serve him till death is a symbol of death. That's pretty cool. Unfortunately, I have to pause here and weigh in on something. This scripture has become a source of debate, and it's really too bad. I think the debate has distracted from the beautiful moment that this is in the Book of Mormon. You might even have questions or opinions about this scripture, and that's understandable. But I think this is much ado about nothing. Here's some things I've heard being argued about with this scripture. Where did Alma get his priesthood from? Alma didn't say the right words when he baptized Helam. Why did Alma baptize himself with Helam? Don't get caught in the weeds here. Some people might have good answers for these, but the fact that these questions persist should at least be an indication that we already have part of our answer. Alma baptized differently than we do. It didn't look the same. It didn't sound the same. That seems obvious here. Otherwise, we wouldn't be asking the questions in the first place. And don't freak out. It's okay that there are some differences there. Mormon seems to be completely fine with it, even though he has Jesus' teachings on how to baptize, and those are different than what we see from Alma. Mormon doesn't feel the need to reconcile the two. Things change. People try their best and learn line upon line. Sometimes we learn over centuries. We shouldn't freak out when we find out that God doesn't deliver the church fully formed right from the beginning. That's not how humans learn, and God would be a terrible teacher if he held us to the standard of omniscience. Let me give you a real-world example here from the history of our church. I'm reading this fantastic book right now by Benjamin Park called Nauvoo Kingdom about the Nauvoo years of the early church, and I learned something that I never knew about the earliest teachings surrounding baptism for the dead. So you probably already know that right away when people learned that they could be baptized for their dead family members, they just got right at it. They went down into the river. Uh, the names weren't recorded. They weren't in a temple. Women were being baptized for men and men for women. And there was just no order to it. Then as the Nauvoo temple started to take shape, Joseph started to teach that baptisms for the dead needed to be done in the temple. And this is the part I never knew. And I'm going to quote from uh, Benjamin Park's book, Nauvoo Kingdom, here. Speaking at that October's 1840 general conference in front of the largest gathering of Mormons yet assembled, Smith added further guidelines, including that only those whom saints had personally known could be baptized. And he also told them that those performing the baptisms must be first visited by the deceased in angelic form. That's pretty interesting stuff. And obviously, things have changed since then. And we should expect that to some degree or another, things will continue to change. Let's be mature readers of scripture and history and realize that if we read everything as if it has to match up to our current understanding or practices in the church, things will either remain confusing or they could even be disruptive. Getting back to the text, Mormon wraps up this section by telling us that Alma baptized 204 souls, but that he only buried himself in the water on the first one. 
And we get this beautiful little description that these souls were filled with the grace of God. We'll wrap up there. Obviously, I had too much to say about this chapter to be able to pull it off in one episode. So be sure to check back for part two of Mosiah 18, where we'll cover verses 17 through 35. Talk to you then. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at soundcloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Isom. Thank you.